just going to pray for you. Lord, thank you for your word and for your spirit that helps open us to your word and enables us to live out your word. Thank you for Christian and for his um, preparation. And we pray that you'll bless him, Holy Spirit, to speak out uh, through him. Open our eyes and ears and hearts to your message. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Yeah, I don't kick that over. Thanks, worship team. I, I, um, I was just singing along as you all were, and uh, it was cool. The "Open the Eyes of My Heart" song. That's an oldie. But a goodie, only for me. But uh, um, one that has a special place in my heart. Um, I'll, I'll speak about this in a minute, but I'll share about this in a minute. But um, I think that album. Uh, I don't know if Michael W. Smith wrote it. No. Okay, Betsy's the worship master. <laughs> She's shaking her head no. Um, but boy, he perfected it though. Uh, he, he put out an album aptly called Worship, uh, yeah, 2003 or four or so. I, I had been listening to secular music, thought I thought was way cooler, and I just like fell headfirst into Michael W. Smith's album called Worship, and that was one of the songs on there. And it was really, it was, it was nourishing for me. And then after that, holy, 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 that song too, when um, we were living in Iowa City, I was probably oh, three or four at the time, but I remember attending this Pentecostal church and um, and they started every service with that song. So I hear that song. I, you know, I was so young that I don't have super articulate memories, but um, I, I, it's more like a, like a scent or like a feel. I think that was a very warm church with, uh, uh, yeah, just sincere people. Um, lot like this church so that was special um i i want to give you some context uh for what i have to share with you today uh i wrote a letter and uh, i'm going to read that letter i wrote the letter addressed to my kids and um i think they'd really appreciate it if you all turned in unison and looked at them in the back um so right embarrassed by dad is sort of a rite of passage so um but i i didn't want you to uh to feel alienated by that certainly i i I wrote this with everyone in mind um but uh it's yeah it just struck me it was something that i wanted to do james is um as i'll share was an important book of the bible for me and um uh, they're, the, the kids are getting older. Time seems to be flying, and um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that just having like a really distinct audience to help me shape what it was that um, was there for me as a father, but um, also a, a brother to to you all in Christ. So, 
Dear Jane, dear Finn, I'm writing to you about a few verses from the book of James, a book of the Bible that is special to me. James is part of the New Testament. It appears near the end of the Bible. It's a small book and easy to flip past. For me, James is special because it's the first book of the Bible that I read and studied when I decided I wanted to stop living so selfishly, which is the way I had been living as a teenager and for most of my young adult life. I had just turned 20 and I was tired and lonely and desperate for Jesus to rescue me from darkness. I had moved back home with my mom, who you know as Grandma Shauna. I was new to reading the Bible, and I didn't know where I should begin, so I asked Grandma Shauna, and she recommended that I read James. When I first read James, I liked how the book read sort of like Proverbs, the Old Testament book of wisdom, which was a book of the Bible I was a bit familiar with, and a book James' target audience probably knew pretty well. Plus, I was hungry for wisdom that came not from this world. I had discovered in my 20 years of life by that point that any wisdom the world offered really wasn't trustworthy or valuable. I wanted lasting wisdom, peace-giving, life-giving wisdom that I believed came only from Jesus. That was about all I was sure of then. In the verses I'm writing to you about today, James is talking to Christians who are either rich or poor. This is what James says. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. I don't remember reading these specific verses years ago, but I do remember my life back when I was 20 years old and how it changed after I moved home to Grandma Shana's and what that was like compared to when I was living with my friends who didn't care about Jesus. But first, let me tell you about the time before I wandered away from Jesus. When I was about your age, I had been attending a church similar to FCBC. It was called Olivet Baptist Church. It was a small church that met in a very plain-looking building. The pastor, Pastor Gary, looked like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. But I loved Pastor Gary. He was like a father figure to me, a person I looked up to very much. Still, most Sundays I did not want to go to church. My mom made me go. I knew Olivet was full of really nice people who had talents and bright personalities, people who loved Jesus very much. I could see that, and I appreciated that. But my interest and my attention was seized by popular musicians of the day and famous athletes. These were people the world thought were the coolest because of the way they dressed, the way they talked, and the fact that they were rich and lived rich, exotic lives. These rich and famous people seemed to me and my friends to hold more promise for life. I liked the people at church, but I didn't think I wanted to be like them because while they were nice and all, they also seemed a bit, well, lame. 
Funny thing is, some of them were actually quite wealthy, I learned later in life. But you would never really know it. They didn't show off their wealth the way celebrities or athletes I looked up to did. So while I believed in Jesus from a young age, I didn't really follow him. Eventually, this led me down a path that got darker and darker. Though I didn't fully realize this until one night in March, when I found myself sitting alone in the back step, on the back step of an apartment I shared with a couple of friends who I was suddenly realizing were not very good friends to me. I sat there trying to cry quietly so no one would see me or hear me. I was lonely and depressed and just wanted to be home and be warm again. Wanted to see Pastor Gary. It had been several years. I called my mom that night at 11 o'clock and she immediately dropped the phone and drove an hour and a half from Des Moines to Iowa City to pick me up and take me home. I don't remember reading these verses from James after returning home, but I remember reading James on the futon in the sunroom of my mom's house. And I remember feeling that Jesus had welcomed me home, that I was safe. And that my life was, in a way, finally just beginning. James was giving me some pretty straightforward ideas on how to live differently now than I was living before. The people at church celebrated my return home. <clears throat> I was afraid maybe they would look down on me for my foolish decisions and the way I had abandoned my church family. They did exactly the opposite. This was really important for my understanding of James. Some of what James was saying, although clear, was challenging. But the people of Olivet helped me see that the Bible could be trusted, not just because it was God's word, but because it was living and active in the lives of the people who read it and believed it. When I returned home and started attending Olivet again as a 20-year-old, I started to remember some of the things I had witnessed when I was a young kid. There were a few times when my mom, Grandma Shauna, was really struggling to pay her bills. She was five months pregnant with my little sister, your Aunt Kat, when my dad, already refusing to get a job to help pay bills, finally just left. And when he left, he took our only family car with him. My mom had a job at a printing press that she got through a temp agency, but doctors told her that she had to quit that job because of the danger that inhaling toxic fumes posed to her unborn child. When she went back to the temp agency, the temp agency told her no one would want to hire her because she was pregnant. It was 1988 and my mom decided she would need to go to college and get a degree to get the kind of job that would support her family. She was using the city bus and walking to the grocery store, but she told me recently she was very depressed and ashamed at that time, and of course very poor. In fact, she feared our family would eventually end up homeless. She didn't tell anyone at church because she said she was so ashamed of the situation she found herself in. The people of Olivet knew what was up. In particular, Lonnie and Sherry Silber. <clears throat> the Silbers asked her one day a few questions about her car preferences. My mom thought nothing of it, but shortly thereafter, the Silbers showed up to the house with a bright red Ford Pinto, used but in great shape, a gift to our family. My mom broke down in tears. 
The story and many others like it, times when people of Olivet showed incredible compassion, charity, kindness, and practical help, came to mind when I returned home at age 20. Sometimes today, looking back, I wonder if in my wandering away from Jesus, I never stopped believing in him because deep down I knew he made a real difference in people because I had witnessed the difference firsthand as a kid through people like the Silbers. I may never know for sure, but I think about, if I think about or hear about, or though I don't wish for this, experience the church ignoring others in desperate need, it makes sense to me that the outcome of that could be a loss of belief or a loss of faith within those suffering. I don't think that things would have been good if the Silbers or anyone at Olivet found out about the poverty my mom was living in when I was a kid, and they read her the verses from James about how she, she, could ta- she could take pride in her high position because she was poor. But I don't think this is what James would have meant to happen either. Grandma Shauna told me many times growing up, and again recently, that Christians are the hands and feet of Jesus. It's kind of a weird metaphor, but I think it has something to do with these verses in James. Hands and feet are important to our bodies. They help us go places and do stuff. Jane and Finn, you are 14 and 12 years old. You are close to becoming young adults. You are still enjoying being kids, and you should. But as the coming years pass, you will go places and do stuff. Even now, you make decisions about what kind of person you want to become. The person you become will influence others one way or another. I pray that you have kingdom influence, that you are a blessing to others, and that you are blessed to be a blessing. I know that is what you want as well. But even though you are kids, you may be learning that the world can make this difficult. It's also true that we can make it hard as well, that there are things about ourselves that seem to wage war against our sincerest desire to be like Jesus. Truth is, we're broken this way. It's not easy. I'm sorry. The world often dazzles us with things. You are not alone in this. It can be very distracting, especially in the United States. I'm very grateful to live in the United States. We have a lot to be thankful for. But our country's culture's main goal is not to help us be more like Jesus. Sometimes I think it is harder for you than it was for me when I was your age. My sisters and I would flip through a J.C. Penny catalog when we wanted to be dazzled and look at things we wish we could buy. You probably don't even know what a J.C. Penny catalog is. <laughs> it's a paper catalog that came in the mail and you had to flip past the toasters and microwaves to get to the toy sections. You have to deal with Amazon and the Internet and social media, and YouTube, which all seem to be configured nowadays just to sell you things, mostly things that you probably don't need, and certainly will not fulfill your dazzling promises that they make. Jane and Finn, James says the rich will pass away like a wildflower, but I don't think James is telling Christians not to be rich. Nor do I think he is saying it's good to be poor. Actually, I don't read this as a guide for how much money we should or should not make. 
The Silbers, the ones that bought my mom a car, they made enough money to suddenly buy a good used car for their sister in Christ, my mom, a single mom in need. That is, they had a lot of money. There are a lot of people with enough money to do things like that. <clears throat> Some of them are Christians. But not everyone uses their money that way, including Christians, including me at times in my life, I'm sorry to say. I think James is worried about the Christians who don't. He wants to remind them not to cling to their money or think this makes them harder workers than others, deserving of their money more than others, or even that their money is only for them or is their own. I think he also wants those who aren't rich, or as James says in my Bible version, those who are in humble circumstances, which is really just a gentle way of saying poor, to know money isn't their salvation or their hope. A little while ago, I went through this period of daydreaming about winning the lottery. I've never played the lottery, and I don't know that I was honestly thinking about playing the lottery during this period of daydreaming. It was more about how I got to thinking that if I had enough money, I wouldn't have to worry so much. I could be free and happy, which is weird, because if I think about it, I don't feel unfree or unhappy. In fact, I often look around and think, wow, do I need all of this? I kind of feel guilty sometimes, honestly especially when I think about or hear about or see how a lot of people in this world live with so much less than me. Maybe this is me listening to James, me being humbled about my riches. I know I'm just a school teacher, so it's sort of silly to think of our family as rich, but by the world standards, we are rich. Think about this. Half the world lives on less money for an entire year than I make in two weeks of work. As a teacher, still I got to daydreaming about more, wanting more. Think about something you really wanted once. Is your love and your desire for this thing what it once was? Or do you desire something new in its place? Does this desire ever go away? I don't think it does. Something else I want you to think about. Have you ever owned something, something of value, and felt a bit more special or cool in the eyes of your friends or your classmates? What became of that? Did you find yourself needing to replace it with something else eventually? I bet you did. I can relate. I want you to be comfortable, and I want you to find a passion in life. Of course, I want you to be financially stable. If you come to me and say that your passion in life is to work at a nail salon or buy and sell Legos on eBay, I will do my best to support your passion. But I will probably have to face my worry with you being able to pay your bills. That's okay, because this would worry me less than if you focused your life on money and things. If you forgot, we are like wildflowers. Jane and Finn, real riches come from Jesus. I think this is James's point. Don't hear what James is not saying, that we don't need things to survive, that it is okay for a family to lose their home or not have what they need to make a living, to be healthy and safe and warm. 
in the end, I think this is one of those things that we know that doesn't sound really surprising to us, but it's tricky. We tend to forget. We tend to forget we forget. This is why reminders and stories of truth to inspire us not only help, they're necessary to keep us using our feet to go where others need us, to use our hands to help those in need. Jane and Finn, I'd like to finish my letter by sharing with you a vision I once had around the time I moved back home when I returned to church and decided to follow Jesus. I was finishing college. I'm not a person who often gets visions or has clear prophetic dreams, but this one vision was clear and I think prophetic, and it's a picture I'll never forget. The vision starts with a shimmering road of golden bricks. The road is floating somehow in a blue sky. And on the road is a parade, a parade of people. Everyone is cheering, full of joy and relief and celebration. A procession of people is parading down the street, and crowds of even more people line the street on both sides. These people are cheering in honor of the ones walking the golden road. I am in the crowd of people lining the street. In the dream, it's clear to me why we're cheering for the people on the road. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered greatly. We are cheering them, but we are worshiping God because it's his mercy and justice and promise that has finally been realized in full. Finally, things have been set right. The orphans and the widow and the poorest of the poor and the oppressed are now first. And I'm happy to cheer for them. Jane and Finn, our lives are a gift from God. We can't forget this. He gives us purpose and the chance to live fully, caring more about people than about things. Life is short of vapor. The scorching sun withers the plant, but there is still time to give and to serve and live not merely as rich people or poor people, but as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. Love, Dad.